Good afternoon from McGee Campus. Uh, Emin Malley here for EminMalley.com. And this afternoon we're putting the whole question of Scottish independence under the spotlight. My two guests here in the university are Mark Durkin, MP, and senior lecturer in the college here in history, Emmett O'Connor. Now it's a big subject, and I suppose the first thing I'd like to ask uh, Emmett is, how do we get to this point of all this talk about Scottish independence? Because um, it was always a bit nebulous, but suddenly it seems to have got legs. How, how has all this happened? Well, I suppose the question, you know, it's a bit like Topsy. It sort of growed and growed. Um, you had the famous uh, by-election victory of the Scottish National Party in the mid-1960s. And then the, the, the party seemed to get some traction, win a few seats in general elections in the 1970s. That worried the Labour Party, especially because Labour always got a lot of support from uh, Scotland and, and, and Wales. And then you had a referendum, a first referendum on devolution, which was defeated um, back in 1979. But then uh, Tony Blair made it um, a, a plank in his, his, his platforms. And there was... Um, but Blair wanted a sort of devolution all round, you know, for the English regions as well as Scotland and Wales. And there's a big, big question. And here, I mean, you had the echo, you had the ghost of Irish history on the march. And people saying, well, look, if you give them a bit of devolution, does that take the steam out of the demand for independence or does it encourage the demand for independence? But the Scots got, got their parliament and um, gradually they pushed for more and more uh, powers. And now they're on the verge of looking for either Devo Max or complete independence. Well, Mark Durkin, uh, you're sitting here in your own city of Derry, looking across the, the sea to Scotland. You're in Westminster regularly. What's your sense, what's your, your, your visceral sense about Scottish independence, uh, your emotional response to that? I don't have an emotional response one way or the other. I don't have a view as to whether Scotland should be independent uh, or not. And I'm not sure, as an Irish nationalist, whether Scotland going independent uh, from England makes a difference in our context to the whole debate uh, on unity. I can actually see it going both ways. I could see Scottish independence, uh, if it happens, absolutely galvanising unionist opinion. Uh, in the north and creating a reaction in England as well so that there would be things to nail down the union between uh, Northern Ireland and England like never uh, before. So some people seem to think that there's a kind of a, a, almost a politics of sort of predictive text here that if you're an Irish nationalist you automatically want uh, and expect Scottish independence and you think that will uh, serve you. Uh, I don't think that it does so you know, I'm not sure that parties here should be particularly engaging in the debate one way or the other because I, I think its impact here is going to be important. It's going to be the biggest conditioner, I think, of political attitudes here in the next couple of years, the whole debate uh, in Scotland, not just around independence, but the other point that uh, Emmett made as well, which is this whole issue of uh, Devo Max, because I think that's the real Scottish nationalist agenda. We'll come to that stage. in a moment, Mark. Um, you spoke there of this whole trend uh, being very undermining and debilitating for Labour, uh, Emmett. But 
Now it's, it, it's the spectre that's looming so largely in front of the Conservatives. Now, uh, according to Owen Patterson, the Secretary of State, uh, they were so concerned about this that they had discussions with Labour to try and gather some intelligence on salmon. But uh, he, he simply says that they're obsessed now with salmon. And when I asked the question, why are they so obsessed? He said, well, listen, he's such a wily fox. We simply do not know what is coming next. So. What is coming next? Is, is Salmon, if I'm not mixing my metaphors, is he literally outfoxing uh, the Conservatives clag heaping them at this point in time? Yeah, well, the Scottish National Party is committed to independence. I mean, that, that's its, its policy, and it's been pushing that, that line for, for, for some years. The problem is that only about a third of Scots want independence, according to the opinion polls, anyway. But... Um, they, they, they do hope to, to achieve complete independence within the very near future. And if Scotland were to go, independence, to go independent, well, it would have profound implications for Britain and its status in the world. I mean, it would be the end of Great Britain as a political entity. It would just be a geographical expression after that. It would have long-term implications for, for the UK as well. So it would completely transform the position of, of Britain in the world. Mark, in an earlier conversation I had with you, you were implying or suggesting to me that it could have a big implication for some Conservatives in the south of England that they too uh, might find themselves in a different place as a result of this independence in Scotland when it comes to voting north, south, south, north, etc. Would you just try and expand on that? Well, the, the, at, at two different levels. First of all, you meet English Conservative MPs who are quite relaxed about the whole idea of Scottish independence. Some of them actually uh, favour it uh, in that sense and have started talking in that those terms even within their own party. But I think with the debate around maximising devolution or devomax, uh, as it's called, where that is going to go at the minute you have a Conservative and Liberal government saying there can't be that question in the referendum. It can only be an in-out uh, referendum uh, question on Scotland as part of the United Kingdom. I think... Conservatives will increasingly move to saying, well, we'll allow the question on maximising devolution to go into the referendum as well, provided that has been put in circumstances where we've negotiated that if Scotland gets maximum devolution, it then gets less of a say in Westminster. So this whole thing of where the government have, in London have set up this thing called the Commission on the West Lothian question, you know, looking at whether or not Scottish MPs should get voting on laws that mainly or largely affect uh, England. So because the Tories are heavily focused on that and they want to minimise Scottish votes and I suppose Northern Irish and Welsh votes uh, in the Westminster Parliament, they will say... Yeah, we'll give you the option of devolution, Max, provided we nail down the minimising the West Lothian question. And there you could have a convergence of agenda between the Scottish Nationalist Party, who want the devo-max option to be put, and the Conservatives, who want the West Lothian question resolved as they would see it. And what they would have in common is they would be hoping to spike... Uh, Labour's agenda and Labour's interest, because obviously Labour in the Westminster Parliament is heavily dependent on its strong representation from Scotland. But if they neutralise the Labour-Scottish representation, you can see why maximising devolution in Scotland could actually be in the calculated interests of the Conservatives. Emma, do you think that uh, any move towards devolution, and I think it was the Lord Advocate or the, is the individual or the 
procurator or procurator fiscal boss in Scotland has implied that this may end up in the courts and the referendum may not take place at all on the on the whatever challenge might take place. Do you think that it's inevitable now that the vote will happen sooner or later? Oh, I, I think I think it is because um, I mean the the British government can argue about who's. Uh, you know whose prerogative it is to call a referendum, or are the terms in which a referendum might be set. But I mean, you, you can't really say to the Scots, you know, you, you can't have a vote on this. I mean, uh, and, and you can't, you know, to quote Parnell, put a boundary to, to the march of a nation. I mean, it would be simply a red rag to, the, to a bull if a British government was to say, no, you, you can't go any further than this. Now, are we talking about the march of a nation here, Mark Durkin? Because there are very, very big issues at stake here for a British government if they allow full-scale independence for Scotland. What are the implications? There's the whole question of foreign affairs. There's the whole question of uh, fiscal matters. Uh, there's the whole question of defence and nuclear bases. There are many, many big issues here which are at the heart, at the very heart of government uh, in London. Can, will London, can they actually see the march of a nation come into being? Well, I think the attitude in London is because there are so many complex issues, they kind of think that the Scots will be intimidated by those complex issues and will end up voting against uh, independence. That seems to be uh, the attitude. But there is, I think, a growing uh, concern uh, in some of these London circles as well. They, they see the Scottish nationalists have played their hand very well over the past number of years. Remember, the whole construct of devolution that Labour came up with was designed to ensure that there could never be a single party Scottish nationalist government uh, in the Scottish Parliament. Yet that's the way they designed the PR system. Yet that's exactly what uh, they now uh, have. And the Scott Nats, of course, have been able to build strong support much further beyond the support that actually exists for Scottish independence because of their whole project of uh, building a coalition of electors. That's the way in which they have used uh, devolution, which was designed to scupper them. They've used it to consolidate their position. So I think a lot of people now in London are saying, well, if the Scott Nats have succeeded in bringing their project forward so well, we can't continue to just write off the prospect of them making a viable push for uh, independence, but they are going to be raising things like, as you say, there's going to be the defence implications, the foreign affairs implications, uh, fiscal issues, the whole question of how do you divide up uh, the proceeds of North Sea oil, for instance, which isn't all Scottish, remember there's parts of England are represented uh, there too. And then, of course, you have in the current terms, of course, there's the whole currency question. Uh, and that's the question that you see that the London commentators immediately throw up at the Scots straight away, as always. The currency, the currency, the currency. Are you staying with sterling or are you going the euro? Well, Emmett, uh, I think the figure being bandied around in terms of indebtedness, in terms of the national debt at the moment, for Scotland, there would be something around £9 billion. Uh, th that would be their share of the cake for recovery, etc., within the London uh, money bag area. Now, Will that be paid? Do you think that will be paid if, if uh, old salmon, wily old salmon gets his way and, and, and gets the vote through one way or the other, will he pay up? Well, I, I think that you know the, the detail would, would have to be worked out uh, be, between both governments. And I mean, there are all sorts of kind of compromise situations you could have. For example, you could have an independent Scottish currency which would be pegged on a one-to-one -one basis with, with sterling or the Scots might, might agree to have their own pound, but always to borrow internationally uh, in sterling. In somewhat the same way as you had the Irish pound pegged with the pound sterling up to 1979.
but are, are these huge are, are these huge issues are like aren't the extraordinary uh, implications for, for for all of these islands now I'd like to t uh, turn to Northern Ireland and the implications for Northern Ireland Mark but before then I could just I could just ask you uh, Emmett in terms of the Republic of Ireland what would be of interest or what impact would this have in the Republic of Ireland do you think well I think there's been a certain interest in this this question um, you know since the time of the uh, the Belfast agreement I mean one, one reason why the Irish government accepted the idea of uh, British Irish Council, which is originally David Trimble's idea, a unionist idea, is that they saw it as a, as a way of loosening up relations within the UK and encouraging uh, devolution and the sort of drifting away of uh, Scotland and Wales from, from London. Um, Bertie Hearn, when he was Taoiseach, uh, spoke to the Scottish Parliament and said that he welcomed the re-emergence of a distinct Scottish personality in the world. Now, he couldn't come out openly and say, I'd like to see Scottish independence. Hold on, uh, Emmett. Do you buy into that theory? Do you think that's true? Do you think that was the motive of the Irish government in accepting and buying into this uh, relationship with Scotland and all uh, meetings, etc.? Uh, no, I, I don't think it was the pure motive. And, you know, I don't believe that the British Irish Council was purely a concept of uh, David Trimble's. What David Trimble tried doing was saying, North-South shouldn't exist in its own channel. It should only exist as a subset of a British-Irish But are you surprised uh, that this thesis has been prosecuted by Emmett? No, well, those of us who were negotiating the agreement at the time, we wanted a British-Irish uh, framework because we said that was the context in which relations need to be settled. The old John Hume thing of there's three sets of relationships within the North, within Ireland, and between Ireland and Britain. But, but, but and was you there any thinking? You needed a framework which resolved all three. No, we were very conscious at the time we were negotiating the agreement as well that devolution was coming in uh, Wales and was coming in Scotland, and we knew that that debate was going to go uh, forward. So it, it, it is designed to accommodate whatever mutations there might be hold on, hold with on. future devolution or independence. That to which I want to get at this point in terms of this discussion is, Emma's implying that the underlying thinking of the Irish government was to dismantle uh, the union per se, if I understand what you're saying correctly, Emmett, uh, to, to loosen the tie between London and Scotland, London, uh, Northern Ireland, London, etc., with an ultimate goal, I presume. Well, that, 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 that was certainly part of the thinking. I mean, certainly certainly was in the minds of people like Martin Manzer. And, uh, and it was part of the reason why they accepted what was originally uh, a unionist idea. I think David Trimble called it the Council of the Isles, which has a nice kind of Walter Scott uh, echo about it. John Hume's idea of the you know the third strand was a bit different. I mean that was a British Irish a British Irish intergovernmental council, but what we ended up with with the council the the British Irish Council was um, uh, you know an association of all of the the governments and all of the jurisdictions and all of the parliaments too. Okay, yeah. Mark, now you were one of the negotiators. I mean, yeah, I said, you were at the table. Yeah, I want to know precisely yeah, what the hell well, you were negotiating. Yeah, yes, and even before even before we got into the formal talks, of course, there had been the frameworks document that was produced in uh, the spring of 1995. That was the subject of discussion at the Forum for Peace and Reconciliation in Dublin, so it all took place publicly. And in that 
uh, I can remember taking the lead for the SDLP on the Strand 3 aspect and we said that Strand 3 wasn't strong enough in the Frameworks document that we needed to have a British-Irish Council. We needed to recognise that devolution was coming, was likely to come, even though we still had a Tory government then, but we believed that the devolution agenda was going to move forward uh, over in Great Britain. And so we were saying that in the event of that happening, we needed to have an arrangement that brought together all of the various administrations uh, on uh, these islands, that it shouldn't just be a London-Dublin uh, thing. So did you want to bring together all of the parliaments and all of the yes. governments? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we said if that happened, yeah. And we said more was needed on Strand 3. But for what precise motive? Because what Emmett has raised here seems to be at variance with anything that I had heard historically in terms of this game of, of dismantling the union per se, which, she, which he's implying was the Irish government's goal. Well, I don't, I, I'm not sure the Irish government were out to dismantle the union as such, but I think they, like ourselves, they saw that the devolution debate was going to move forward, forward. Uh, in Britain. It was clear that the Labour Party, then in opposition, were committed to significant uh, change. And as, and as Emmett has said, they were talking even about devolution, not just for Scotland and Wales, but for large parts mm-hmm. of England uh, as well. And yeah. so it was in that context. And we were using that point one to make sure that unionists that we were negotiating with or hoping to negotiate with. Remember, some of them were still committed to integration or only very limited devolution. You know, they just wanted a glorified county council. Mm-hmm. We were trying to say there is a wider debate. We should take our biggest part of that dynamic. Right. Now, I, I, w- I want to come back to the implications for Northern Ireland because you have a very interesting thesis, uh, Mark, in terms of where Peter Robinson might see himself and the stage onto which he might climb in, in amidst all this debate about Scottish independence. But if, when you hear the term Devo Max, Emmett. It's like some energy drink or power <laughs> yeah, drink. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. And in fact, it, it, it's really the antithesis of, of a power drink or an energy drink. In, in simple language, explain for the uninitiated what Devo Max means. Well, uh, it, it's sort of the, the maximum amount of devolution short of independence. Essentially, w- what it means, the critical element is that instead of all tax revenues going from Scotland to London and then a block grant going back to the Scottish government from London, that the Scottish government would collect all its revenues and pass on a share of these to London for things like defence and foreign affairs. That seems quite simple, straightforward, uncomplicated, <laughs> clear as mud, I would say, to most people. Work that one out. Or as Seamus Heaney said, uh, well, puzzle me this, or the fisherman said to Seamus Heaney, riddle me this one, or puzzle me this one. <laughs> so there'll be some puzzling to be done on that one. Now, Mark, uh, let's move directly to where we are. Uh, the implications for Devo Max, independence, call it what you like, in Scotland, vis-a-vis Northern Ireland. What are the implications? Will we find ourselves thinking differently as a result of Scottish independence, should it come to pass? Well, Scottish independence or Devo Max, whichever colour you know, really takes over in this debate over the next couple of years. First of all, in the bid for Scottish independence, I think you will see... Uh, unionists here, particularly Peter Robinson, deciding that he's going to make himself a UK unionist uh, and he will want to campaign very strongly uh, and he will try to be seen to be campaigning alongside David Cameron and Ed Miliband uh, and anybody else at a UK level fighting uh, to save uh, the union. Uh, I think he would hope that that would provide a context in which he can move towards, he can move forward his project for unionist unity uh, as well, that it's very much trying to re-galvanise unionism around the concept of uh, saving uh, the union for uh, the UK. In the context of the uh, Devo Max 
debate. Of course, that is, uh, as Emma said, that then touches on all the issues then about how money is allocated within uh, the United Kingdom. It then it leads to the whole issue of devolving fiscal powers over taxation uh, and all the rest of it. It will fundamentally change the picture in relation to the Barnett formula. And I don't know that many parties in Northern Ireland are ready yet for a full and proper debate on the ins and outs of the Barnett formula and what might replace now, you it. You would explain in layman's language, or did in ordinary people's language, this Barnett formula, formula it basically, basically is a, a benchmark or a yardstick uh, yeah. by which monies are allocated to the various regions of the UK. I mean, yeah. say to a lot of people, these things are foreign mark. You take yeah. them for granted. And yeah. You guys, Emma, no. you, you all think everybody understands the bloody Barnett formula. Yeah, yeah the Barnett formula, it, yes, it's, it's, it's used. It's a rough formula that is used to decide how much extra spending in a given year comes to Northern Ireland or goes to Scotland uh, or Wales, whatever. And uh, it's on the basis of your population, but it's not your total, it's not your population, your share of the population when it comes to the increase in spending. It means Northern Ireland will be losing money in years to come under the borrowing formula because it's designed to squeeze the difference in spend between Northern Ireland uh, and Scotland uh, and England. That, that's, that's the aim of it. But if the whole debate on Devo Max really takes off, and I do believe the Scottish nationalists will end up getting that uh, as one of the questions that goes down, then things like how money is allocated inside the United Kingdom and how money is raised by devolved uh, parliaments becomes oh, I, a serious I, I, issue. I want to move on to resources in Scotland, and I want to ask you, what will happen to those resources which Salmon claims <laughs> the Scots own? Um, in terms of this question of the people empowered are able to vote for independence or Devo Max, this 16-year-old vote, 17-year-old vote, where, where do we rest with that? Is Salmon wants, is, it wants a broader constituency involved in this, in this election? Is, isn't that essentially it? Yeah, he, he, he does want to lower the, the voting age uh, because the, the SNP gets more support uh, among the lower age groups so that they would like to actually give 16 or 17 year olds to vote on, on this issue. Yeah. Now, like, you know, how, how realistic is this? How far-fetched? What, what are the implications when it comes to that, Mark? Can he do that? Is he empowered to do that? Would he have to legislate to do that? Uh, as things stand at the minute, he doesn't have the power. Uh, to do that. The Scottish Parliament don't have the power to do that. I mean, I believe it should happen anyway, not just for this referendum. I believe in lowering the voting age to 16 and I've spoken and voted uh, for that in Westminster and uh, elsewhere. Uh, I think where people have the issue with this is where people see this has been done particularly only for this referendum and this referendum only, but to my mind, votes at 16 is sensible. Uh, it's happening in the Isle of Man already. It is happening uh, in a number of other jurisdictions. And I think it's sensible because if we, if we want young people to vote, have them voting at an age when they're still likely to be at home. They're more on. likely to get the Hold voting on. habit when What's they start at 16. Stop? What's to stop uh, the Scottish people to unilaterally, arbitrarily decide to, to allow the 16-year-olds to vote? Well, the whole business of registration and the legal business of registration and what then makes the registration uh, legal in terms of... You'd, you'd earlier said about the question of the referendum and you were asking Emmett about what if that is contested in a, in a court. Yes. People would contest if there was an attempt to adulterate the register uh, in some sense because re electoral registration takes place under certain laws and powers on a certain basis. 
are individual officers going to say, yes, we will register 16-year-olds because the SNP say so, and then in another place they won't? Because remember, the registration in Great Britain is done not through an independent electoral office, uh, as it is here. It's done essentially with electoral registration officers who are employed by councils. You know, so it's local government and local government politics comes into it. So uh, at the minute, he will not be able to change uh, the law purely for this referendum. Yeah, but Emma, I mean, you say, this is a man uh, to whom I've listened who is very close to talking about expropriating the wealth of the, of the United Kingdom, uh, viewing the wealth, viewing the natural resources in Scotland as belonging to the people of Scotland. So what, where will this man stop, given the sort of language he's using? Well, they, they want complete independence. It doesn't make any secret of that. I mean, back in the 1970s, you know, the uh, SNP had a very prominent slogan saying, it's, it's our oil. So, I mean, they, they've always, you know, uh, emphasised that Scottish resources should be used for Scottish people and that, uh, you know, they, they like to argue that Scotland is the only country that found oil and, and got poor in consequence because they're, they're a part of the UK because, they're, you know, the wealth is draining south to, to London. Is that valid? Because I've heard the figure of a, six, of a 16% differential in terms of money flowing into, into Scotland from via the Barnet vis-a-vis money flowing out. Like, what, is the, what are the true facts, do you, do you think, of, of the wealth of, in Scotland? Is that money flowing southwards? Well, obviously, the Scottish nationalists feel that it is, not least in terms of the money that attaches uh, of oil and all the revenues uh, from that. The fact is, all the parties in Scotland believe that, as it stands at the minute, the Barnet formula suits them fine, which is why when some of us were trying to open up reviews of the Barnet formula a few years ago, the Scottish didn't want to assist us in that. The Welsh did want to, uh, and then they got bought off with objective one status when it came to European uh, money or whatever. So uh, in terms of how the public expenditure cake is allocated at the minute, Scotland does well enough under the Barnet formula, but the Scottish National are saying, look, this is about more than just dividing up that cake that is the Barnet formula. They're saying they, they want to go much deeper uh, and harness the economic potential uh, of uh, Scotland. And they're not just saying about taking the debt, taking the assets. They're also being upfront about saying they will take their share of the UK yeah. debt. That's a measure of their confidence. Yes, yeah, so Sabbath says, we'll give you nine billion. We owe you nine billion. We, we'll pay off. We, we'll not be indebted to anybody. We'll just pay. Now, I, I just want to, I want to focus a little bit on Peter Robinson's role because you, you talked about him climbing up to this, onto this stage and becoming the custodian, the guardian of unionism and potentially... Uh, potentially becoming the, the main unionist leader in Northern Ireland. I'll come back to you in a minute, Emma, because I know we're getting against the clock. But how do you think that would work out? Will he use that as a main platform for, the, for whatever election comes down the line in the next couple of years? I, I think he will use that as the backdrop for creating unionist uh, unity, because he'll say this is now part of a much bigger, wider debate. It's not about just divided unionism within uh, Northern Ireland. So he will use it uh, for that backdrop. It's also going to be interesting, I think, in the context of moving towards unionist unity, uh, is he going to say the referendum in Scotland becomes narrow or looks like it's been narrow, is he going to then say, because that's maybe worrying unionists here, that unionists here need the reassurance of a referendum here? I mean, everybody has always presumed that the referendum that's allowed under the Good Friday Agreement uh, would come at the demand of nationalists. But people should remember, it was David Trimble who back in 2002 said he wanted the referendum on the border then. He wanted it on the same day as the Assembly election because it would get the turnout. But we shouldn't rule out in these circumstances that it will become a tactic of unionism to either seal or celebrate their move to unionist unity, that they will say they want the border question settled here. 
not chosen in a nationalist time, and it's a bit like where Cameron in England tried saying, if there's a referendum in Scotland, we'll fix the timing of it. It won't be the timing of the yeah, Scottish nationalists. It could well be the case here that the debate on the on whether or when there should be a referendum course, on the border will actually start to be pressed by unionists. Of course, Salmon is driving a coach and uh, horses through that idea of, of David Cameron deciding when, when the election takes place or when the referendum takes place in Scotland. Yeah, yeah but Cameron, Cameron wants to defeat the referendum and he wants to take in yes, place sooner. So don't rule out, yes. don't rule out that you could have the paradox of unionist leadership here saying we want the referendum here. Well, hold on, uh, Emmett. Would you then... Uh, uh, would be, is it conceivable that there would be a push on a north-south basis for some form of referendum? Because referendums don't really take or should or have normally taken place in isolation because on the, on the Good Friday Agreement there was a north-south ref- referendum. Where would all this fit in? Well, there'd be no rationale for a referendum in the south along with the referendum in the north. But, I mean, Scottish independence would have profound implications, I think, for, for unionism because it, it affects, you know, England, Wales in terms of, and indeed the Republic of Ireland, uh, in, you know, in administrative and economic terms, but it also affects the unions in terms of identity because an independent Scotland would mean that Britain didn't exist anymore as a political entity. It would just be a geographical expression. Mark, what would be the implications, though, of, of a referendum in, in, in Northern Ireland in the context of the referendum uh, which took place uh, and the Anglo-Irish agreement whereby it was declared should a majority in Northern Ireland, even by one, if I remember correctly, uh, votes for a united Ireland, the UK, on the road that and said, yes, we will legislate for a, a united Ireland. So where would that all fit yeah. in? Well, first of all, I think if there was a vote for Scottish independence, I think you would see unionists for the sake of their own reassurance or whatever suddenly demanding that the referendum take place uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, just as David Trimble did. Would London resile then from what they agreed in terms of the... the, the Well, obviously, the unionism in seeking a referendum then would be hoping that uh, they got a result confirming uh, that Northern Ireland stayed inside uh, the United Kingdom. Of course, if there was a majority for a united Ireland, then yes, under the Good Friday Agreement, Britain is committed to uh, respecting that and putting but would that Britain in, in would, would, would Cameron, would Cameron allow uh, what he has left to, to be further diminished? No, but remember, Britain was always has always allowed the concept of Northern Ireland leaving the United Kingdom. I mean, the, the thing that has changed in recent years is that you have mainstream opinion in Scotland is now conceiving of circumstances where they might allow Scotland to leave the United Kingdom previously. Northern Ireland was the only bit yes. uh, that they had said was a provisional uh, participant in the United uh, Kingdom. So that that's where thinking has changed. Mm. But they're, they're not going to change on the agreement. But remember, under the agreement too, it's agreement north and south uh, on unity and the question will have to be put at some point in the south because of course unity changes things in the south as well and we know in the past that the southern electorate doesn't always necessarily go along with the consensus that there is in their national political leadership. Emma, if we could go on all night, it's fascinating, I love this debate. Uh, final word from you. Well I, I think it has huge implications for both Britain and Ireland and I think if Scotland did go independent it would just be the beginning of a process because it would comp- it would transform You'd relations. You'd be in the talk with the SDLP now. <laughs> <laughs> a process. Yeah. It would be a process leading to a process. Yeah, it would be, yeah. <laughs> or an yeah. iterative process, yeah. 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 But it, it would transform relations, I think, between England and Wales and between Northern Ireland and England also. Fantastic. Mark Durkin, Emmett O'Connor, it's been a great conversation. I do not know why we haven't heard more about this conversation or all this type of conversation and the implications, because the implications are so far-reaching. To both of you here on the McGee campus, good afternoon.